Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Today's episode is brought to you by Adventure Dice. Adventure Dice is an online dice shop based here in Vancouver, selling a variety of dice and other gaming accessories. Personally, I'm a big fan of their rolling trays and the Grounded Pixie Dice Set. Adventure Dice ships for free anywhere in Canada, and if you use the code DMV at checkout, you can get a 10% discount on your purchase. That's DMV for a nice discount on your new tabletop gear. Find the shop at adventuredice.ca and roll for adventure! Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs Vancouver. Today we're going to be talking about Casketland. Today we're talking to Marie Anger. How's it going, Marie? It's going good. How about you guys? It's going well. Good. Um, so, uh, Marie, where might folks know you from? Um, so most folks know me from comics, actually. I got my start doing uh, comic coloring work, so I colored Matkin's Pistol Whip and um, Two Sisters, Regression. From there I started doing um, some drawing stuff, so I started drawing some Adventure Time backups. I do a lot of Rick and Morty covers. I do uh, some Peter Zim covers. I do Rockwood Modern Life stuff. Um, I lettered Department H and Patrick McHale's bags. I did a lot of work for a Canadian punk band called Pup. Uh, and so a lot of people found me through that comic um, for their song, The Coast. No, Pine Point was the one that people got. Um, and so I started doing that stuff. And then I started drawing a comic called Photogon and Loathing, which is a like a Eldritch Stoner comic. And from there I kickstarted a book called Nosferatu. Um, so I think mostly people knew who I was from my comics background. But what was funny was a lot of the Cassiatland people were not comics people ever. They were new fans completely um, and found me through the zine quest that Kickstarter ran in February, 2019. Awesome. A really long-winded answer. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. Um, I just want to say before we get talking about the RPG, I actually discovered yeah. Pup through your art. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really weird. Like I, I was doing mostly just practice. Um, my art style was so weird and a lot of people were not paying attention to it on its own. So I thought that if I did like uh, comics based off songs, I really liked, it might get a little bit more traction and it, you know, did pretty well. Like with Fiddler, it did not as great with like World Inferno, but with that pup comic, people just loved it. And it was so odd. People were coming up to me at conventions and telling me that they loved it and where can they buy it, blah, blah, blah. I did like a little bootleg crappy um, collection of like the songs that I had done comics of, but you know, 150 people bought that. And then Pup did a little zine with a record and it sold out instantly. I actually don't have any copies of the first volume of that <laughs> zine. It was so fast it was gone. And so that's been super weird at like comic shows is I'll get people who don't know comics at all, but no Pup. And then they've come to see me, that's which awesome. is neat, but a little bit weird. So Let's dive into to Casketland to get started. Um, mm -hmm. What was the, the inspiration for Casketland? So there's a Builders and Butchers album called The Spark. And on that album, they had a song called Casketlands. And I remember listening to that, that song, which wasn't even a song that I particularly liked, but I loved that kind of feel of Casketlands. And I thought that was an interesting like word combination. And so I sat on it for about, you know, six months. Um, and was invited to do a D&D campaign at my local comic shop for Halloween. Their only request was that I make it really spooky. And I am extremely into homebrew campaigns. And so I just skinned it for like this post-apocalyptic Western thing. 
they were all going to go out into this mine and get water. And it was, it was interesting because there were things like the demo expert um, and like there was a grave digger class. There was a preacher class. There was a uh, prospector class, a dowser class. Like there were so many different weird kind of classes that I threw in there and let people draw at random. And we played this game and it was on originally, I think fifth edition, which was easy because nobody, everyone knew the rules. I didn't have to explain anything. Um, but I also didn't have to modify anything. So um, when it was time to do something for ZineQuest, my manager was kind of prodding around on campaigns that I had run and themes that I had done before. And one of the ones that he kept gravitating back to was Casketland. And um, so after that, it just kind of made sense to go and kind of process that idea and refine it a little bit. Um, and when I was writing it, I started, I've always listened to a lot of Murder by Death, but I think really who will, who will survive and what will be left of them is kind of the biggest inspiration um, for the game. I could kind definitely of that see that. Sadness. Huh? I could definitely see that. <laughs> I really loved it. It was, I don't know if anyone else has listened to it. If they haven't, they should. It's really um, cinematic and it's brooding and it's bleak. And at the end, it's not so great. Like nobody has a happy ending in that album. And I just really loved it. And so from there, I just kept processing and refining. I take a lot of inspiration from the Dust Bowl um, and Nuclear Winter. So that was a lot of it. Um, a little hodgepodge of stuff. I also like really creepy textured uh, art. And so that was kind of a big push on the art style, which is a little bit different than my normal comic style. Well, why don't we talk a bit about that? Because I'm, okay. I'm like, I, I've been familiar with your art for maybe a year or two. So mm -hmm. like, I can see some ways in how it's different from a lot of your style. Like a lot of this, this other stuff that you put out other than uh, the Nosferatu book, I've seen relies on a lot of like uh, greens and yellows and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But what, what do you, what is the main difference in your style for Casket Land? Casket Land is done with a pencil brush entirely. So every line is a little bit more distressed, tends to have a little bit more texture than my other work. Um, and because of the, because tabletop should be accessible to anyone who wants to play, I tried to make every character pretty blank so that you could slot your character in there. Um, and normally I kind of try to push a certain facial feature on a character and in Casket Land, their faces are covered. You don't see anyone's hair except the gravediggers um, and I guess the bad guys. But I wanted to make kind of a self-insertable uh, character design so that people could, you know, do whatever they wanted with them. Uh, and so designing them was pretty much same body, different outfit, cover the face, cover the head. And I usually don't ever draw characters wearing hats because they're a pain in the ass. And I usually try to like glasses or some sort of weird facial scar. I poke out an eye or something. And the brushes that I use for comic stuff tend to be a, they're a pen brush. So they're still kind of gritty, but they're a lot sharper. And it's a lot cleaner. Um, and Cassie Land is only in black and white. That was a style choice made on the zine quest parameters. We could only print in one color. So it made sense to just do black and white. I can't imagine the world outside of black and white now. So it's going to stay that way. Whereas most of my other work will not. I, I really love the aesthetic of the game. Sean is just kind of leaping through the guide right now. Um, <laughs> but like, I yeah, like I I strongly associate the aesthetic of it with the game itself. And mm -hmm. so I think you were really successful with kind of like marrying those two things. And also like, like you were saying, uh, making characters that it, or making kind of character archetypes that it's easy to slot any character into. Yeah, it, it was important to me that anyone be able to do that. Um, something that a lot of people don't notice uh, is that a lot of the characters, all of the characters that are not like not, not NPCs are all using they, them pronouns. Um, it was something that 
I, I guess other gender people would get, but a lot of cisgender folks did not quite grab it. And that's been something that a lot of, I don't know, that was a lot of thought that went into that to make sure that it was for everybody, I suppose. Sorry, can I start over yep. on that? Sorry. Um, I don't know where I was going with it. It's not important. Well, actually, like, I, I wanted to follow up on, on that point about the, the pronouns. Okay. Um, because it's it's actually something that I've started to notice when a, uh, if I look at a, like a one-page RPG or... Uh, stuff that I find online, um, I've actually started to notice, like when a, when a, it's actually something I've noticed a lot in board games because RPGs I found tend to be a little bit better, but like board games, it's, it feels like every rule book I read is talk. They talk about the the players using he him pronouns, or mm-hmm. uh, and it 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 started to jump out at me, and um, I just I. I like the fact that this is is they them because it it just feels more inclusive. It yeah. feels better, mm-hmm. and it feels like an yeah. easy change that I feel like more games in general could do. Yeah, it is literally a find and replace function. <laughs> yeah, it is easy. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, one sec. <coughs> uh, one thing that I wanted to say though is that like just like Jesse said, I've been leafing through the book because I just I'm I'm seeing this art and it just feels just so evocative of a specific a specific tone like it feels um there's the tone that like some western movies and some comics and books that i've read that they evoke this tone of um kind of just a a hopelessness of like just this like things kind of suck and they're always going to suck and we're just going to try and live with it kind of tone and i am really digging it (laughs) (laughs) That is all I'm about. Even with like Fatagan, even with Bones at this place, everything else I do, um, just sad. Just there's no escaping this. We just have to survive best we can. That's actually going to play a lot into the next module. Um, there will be creatures and certain enemies that you just won't be able to defeat no matter what you do. And so when do you learn to walk away and just try to keep on living with this new horrible addition to the world? Um, so I, I'm I am a very bleak i'm really glad that you dig it it's actually it's actually something that's actually something that i really like is the idea of an rpg having monsters that you just you cannot defeat like um there's a game uh it's the end of the world series they've got four different books and one of them is um is gods and monsters is gods basically like one of the scenarios Mm. is ragnarok happens and you have to deal with um just the end of the world Norse style. And one of them is, uh, I can't remember what the other ones are right off the top of my head, but one of them is Cthulhu. And one of the things that they did is that like all of the characters and NPCs and monsters have stats that range, I think up to 10 and Mm -hmm. Cthulhu, they specifically put all of his stats at like 20 or something like way above what any other monster will have, because they pointed out in the rules that like you cannot kill this monster like that is Mm -hmm. the kind of the point is that he's this eldritch unknowable thing that will just destroy the world and there's nothing you can do to stop it and the idea of having monsters in a game where it's like no you the point is to like survive to get away and save what you can not to fight and kill the you know the tarasque like in D &D, but to just get out with what you can Mm -hmm. um do you mind if I jump around a bit in the question, Sean? Go for it. Okay. Um, so 
be- because we were just recently talking about the characters and stuff like that, I'm I'm really interested about uh, I'm really interested in how you did the aspects for the characters. Like I oh. I appreciate how like you can make it so every ca- every time like if you're playing a repeat or repeat games with di- like different characters every time you could play the same kind of archetype but would make it a little bit different mm-hmm. um and I, i'm yeah. just wondering what kind of what what a thought went into that my one of my favorite dms I, I don't get to play in a lot of games i dm a lot but i don't get to play but one of my favorite dms for my games runs this super old first edition homebrew game oh, wow. and we had to roll for our, our character class i got a vat born which i love and then you have to roll for every single attribute about that character and i rolled a character that i would have never played in the entire world ever chosen to play this character they have no hit points they have no memory so they're very dumb they don't understand anything they have no bones their eyes are on stalks they can stretch really far i would never have chosen that and it's made me play this very very weird character and it's been very creative and very fulfilling and when i was creating casket land i wanted to make sure that anybody could play regardless of skill level and they would have something special about their character that felt unique to them, but wasn't something that they felt pressured to come up with on the spot. So I thought of, I went to a bar with my D&D handbooks and a printout of the Powered by the Apocalypse rule sets and just sat down, had a pitcher of beer and thought of like the coolest or the grossest stuff I could think of. Um, for things like the minor, I did a little bit of research to see what actual miners do. So I, I don't really know much about that stuff. Um, but everything else was just kind of thinking like, what would be a cool thing that's really good to have a char- to happen for a character or something really bad? Like, I think the um, Gravediggers have like the, the best kind of could be good, could be really bad thing. And they have like that one aspect where they just talk in unison, which doesn't really do anything. It just makes them extra creepy. But they have that other one where they can call up dead shit. So it's kind of... <laughs> You're going to have such a different variance in that. And I love the idea of it being randomized. I just, I just do. Yeah. Um, I had, I actually have two follow-up questions from that. One okay. is um, the Gravediggers. And this is actually just more of a, a point of clarification for me. Um, if one dies, the other still exists, right? Because they're functionally like two separate yeah. entities. Um, the Gravediggers are really cool, Sean. <laughs> I think you'd dig them. Um, I also wanted to ask you... Um, and this actually comes from a question from uh, Talia, who's at Tally on Twitter. Um, and she wanted to know, and I actually also wanted to know, um, what inspired you to kind of make the exception to the aspect rule, which is the gambler, right? Because he doesn't, his aspect is every time he uses the ability, he rolls, right? Yeah. So my character, my partner actually came up with that idea. We were sitting in this, um, in this bar and he typically plays uh, like rogues and kind of duplicitous characters like that. And so he had wanted to play the gambler and we thought about having them cast spells depending on what they did. And, you know, each one would be like a healing or a, uh, you know, an attack or a defense or something like that. And then I was like, no, 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 that's too happy. (laughs) That's way too good for this character to have. It's like gambling. It either goes right or it goes wrong. And so I wanted to make sure that that character was super powerful if you got real lucky, but so bad if you don't. I just think that's a more intriguing way to play. Um, that, that's, that's it. I just thought of what horrible stuff I could do to people. <laughs> that's I, I really like that idea because it's it's the thing that I think I love the most about uh, in D and D the wild magic sorcerer because they mm. like it feels like that concept but just cranked up to eleven because it's it's kind of one of my 
peeves with the with the wild magic thing is that like the wild magic sorcerer gets to do a bunch of really cool stuff but very it feels like very 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 rarely does the bad stuff ever happen and mm-hmm. the bad stuff can range from you accidentally turn into a potted plant for half an hour to like you cast fireball centered on yourself and it feels like having something like where you have to roll every single time to see mm-hmm. do you get the effect you want i I really love that idea because the, those I feel like those moments of like you have to gamble to like try and yeah. accomplish what you're looking for. It feels like those are the moments that everybody remembers when you're at a when you're playing a game. Like if you're fighting a boss or a bunch of enemies and you have to make a roll and this could either, you know, end and everything is successful and you get to live another day or everybody dies. And it all depends on this one dice roll. That's it's super intense, and I like it. It is. It's interesting to play. I've played so many. I've played so many Casket Land games, guys. Um, so when I ran my first like game was out, we had the books in hand. Uh, game with people instead of having everybody just read off their phones. We had a we had everybody make it through to the end. They won the game, and they won because the gambler in the last second was given I think a dead man's hand or whatever gives you that extra roll from another player was able to roll twice, biffed the first roll, succeeded on the second roll, had all these items that they could use in addition to their roll, just wiped out the entire uh, clock, entire sagehen, all the harpies, all that stuff. It was great. It was awesome. An explosion of fire. Really cool. And then a couple of weeks ago, I ran a game where our gambler tried to do something out in the casket lane day one and blew everybody up. Everybody died. <laughs> it was a 20-minute game. We got out of the town, and that was it. Um, which I, I like, I think that's kind of fun. Not knowing how that game's going to go, knowing that your character's probably not going to survive. Uh, I wish more people would play a little bit more aggressively. I wish more Cassie Land DMs would let their players die or really try to kill them. Cause I think that's part of the fun of DMing the game. Everyone thinks that Loam is benevolent, but that's not necessarily true. I think that's one of the things that D and D and the community have kind of gotten in. Like, it's just a, Something that has become part of the bedrock of D&D is that the DMs for D&D and games like that is that the DMs are playing, telling a story with the players and they're not necessarily antagonistic. But I like, I do like the idea of having a game where the DM is supposed to be actively antagonistic. Yeah, and I yeah. I feel like that allows, uh, it allows for a, like a greater kind of variety of play between different games, right? Like, um, you know. I I tend to DM D and D, and I am not actively antagonistic to my players um, because I know that with my specific group, that's not what they're looking for. But like, mm-hmm. if I'm playing Casket Land with them and they they agree to play it, which is you know maybe not a thing that would necessarily happen. <laughs> it, it but like the kind of context is already there that this is like this is a dangerous game. Mm-hmm. Like your characters are constantly at risk. Um, I had. And we can make this very quick. A quick mechanic question about rolling to use the gambler's aspect. Yeah. Um, and basically how that works, because like uh, I'm, I'm just not sure why you need to roll um, plus creep to roll the one d six. Like, does that does that uh, add to your roll, or does that give you a swing or something like that? If you if you succeed on your roll, it it adds to your roll. If you lose, it does nothing. Okay. And we're actually, that's a very good question. No one's asked that before, but that's going to go up in beta. We're about to release for beta back Perfect. in, you know, November, 2019. Yeah. Um, and so that's a really, really good thing for us to add. Yeah. Uh, this is my first rule set that I've ever done. Oh yeah. And 
challenging. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, um, I, I feel like that's the thing with writing rules is like, there are people who have been doing it for 20 years who still include some, like, they, you see in D&D, &D, and those people have been writing, or like the pe main, like, people running the show there have been writing for decades. Mm -hmm. They still make weird mistakes, or like, are unclear. It's all very, very new. Some people are very, very cool about it. Some people are not. Um, a lot of people have given me a lot of grief, uh, my manager, a lot of grief about not having a printed out rule book yet to varying levels of like disgruntled behavior. Um, and part of that is simply, I don't want to have a game where I go on a podcast and they have to ask me a question about rules. You shouldn't have to ask that question, but I'm glad you did. So now I can fix it and make it sure that no one else has to ask it. All those questions people ask about uh, loud, messy, <laughs> what instability is, kind of that kind of stuff all the time. And every time someone asks it, it just helps me make that rule set so much stronger for when we finally release it in a hard bound format. Uh, that actually nicely brings me into a question I got from Maat and Kevin Wilson about instability. Um, and more like what the philosophy behind it is, um, because from, if I recall, I read the books a few days ago, it's, mm -hmm. it's one of the ones where it's like, it's like an ongoing damage effect, but the DM kind of decides when it occurs. Mm -hmm. Um, why, um, why did you go with that as opposed to a, uh, like a more kind of standard poisoned or something condition where it's kind of like, it happens at a steady rate? I like giving the, uh, the DM a lot of power. <laughs> As someone who DMs a lot, sometimes you want to make sure that, like, I don't know, if someone gets crushed by a boulder, they're going to be damaged in a different way than if someone got bit by a rattlesnake, right? So if you get by a rattlesnake, then hell yeah, poison, all that good stuff. If you get hit by a rock, you're going to lose, like, a hand. So your aim's not going to be very good anymore. And it's, I just love the idea of being able to tailor different sorts of damage and kind of, you know, disadvantage for people to what dumb decision they made or what accident befell them. Yeah, I, I really like it too, because I feel like it also, it, it adds to the drama, right? It's another tool yeah. for the GM to be like, okay, um, yeah, you know what? You hurt your hand earlier, you're trying to do something with it now, you're in the unstable or instability condition. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know what? You you have disadvantage or you have a penalty or whatever. I, I really, I think it's actually a really elegant little bit of design. We're going to be adding a little bit more to it in the second campaign, which is the uh, Kruik run. Um, and it takes place in like this horrible, for lack of a better word, blood swamp. And there's an infectious uh, fungus that you can catch. And that's going to have a very specific like, here's the times, here's when the disease progresses, here's what happens to you as it progresses. Really strict guidelines for that. Awesome. But that I think is going to be the only one. I, I think that's going to be the only specified damage yeah. for people. Uh, you said blood swamp and Sean made a really delighted face. So Sean, do you want to... <laughs> The, just the, the 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 words blood swab just i love it i love it so much um but i i did want to yeah. i did want to say though like the idea of having damage uh, or something that lets the the gm tailor how something affects the players based on what they've done is something that i really like about powered by the apocalypse and more story driven games because it's it's it is one of the things that bugs me about D&D &D is that it's got all of these different damage types but functionally for most like most of the time there's no difference between cold and fire and poison and bludgeoning and slashing like it would and and I get that this is because D&D &D is kind of meant to be high epic fantasy like it's meant to be like oh yeah you've got a you got burned by a dragon but you just you shrug it off and you keep on fighting but 
it would be great if there was something like like a a hardcore like the 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 version of D and D that was like the the version of Diablo where if you die you have to start all over again <laughs> where yeah where like where like if you get hit by a a fire attack then you have to figure out like is your arm now a shriveled husk and you can't hold a sword in that arm anymore kind of stuff I I love that 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 idea of just the things that happen to your your character actually affect them more than just well you're a little bit closer to death now like having an ongoing effect in the game because i feel like those are the places where the players get to really role play and shine in how yeah the story progresses oh yeah i i agree with all of that um and again like one of my 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 dm he believes in permadeath and will kill any character if you make a dumb decision i think that's really important i think having actual consequence to a decision you've made in game is extremely important. Um, when I ran the first game of Cascadeland, we had a group of people who didn't know each other, who had never played games before, and it was, I think, about 12 people. So it was way too many people in the game. And we had a guy who had come in and he wanted to just fuck shit up. That's all he wanted to do. And he played a uh, demolition expert class where he just had dynamite. Uh, and he would set whatever on fire. And so their whole their whole mission was they had three days to go get water from this well. And it was down this canyon, and there was a wooden scaffolding that they had to go down. And he lit it on fire. And when they got to the well and they killed the monster and they were ready to go back, they were like, let's go up the side of the cliff. And I was like, "You, <laughs> there's nothing to go up. You're stuck there now and you're just going to die in that hole because you burnt the only way out. You were being impulsive, you were being a dick, and now you all die here. And that was one of those moments where I was just like, I want to make sure that that never happens in a game I run ever again if you make a dumb decision there will be a consequence and that's really really important in casket land this actually reminds me of a phrase um named, uh, a man named jacob burgess said about running vampire games like his f- four favorite words are you asked for this yeah what whatever oh, happened yeah. you asked for this and like the 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 shirt that i got for backing the kingdoms and whatever thing from <laughs> oh, okay. matt colville is like it's something that he said in one of his videos but it's the earth elemental steps on your head until you're dead like the idea of like a monster isn't going to go and like uh, attack somebody else just because you're unconscious it's going to mm-hmm. kill you because it wants yep. to make sure the threat is gone yeah yeah. I mean, and I feel like that's especially suitable for Casket Land, considering how uh, malicious just everything feels in it. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it, <laughs> I hate to say it gets worse, but it gets so much worse. Good. Um, I, I know. <laughs> I've outlined out quite a few stories in advance, really trying to make sure that I can perfect everything before I release it. And every game ugh, just gets worse. <laughs> every monster is worse. Your monster in the Cruet campaign is going to be particularly brutal and numerous and some of them like i said just can't be beat um you're just stuck um i don't know i'm i'm really excited for everyone to just play this game and die (laughs) (laughs) that's not i shouldn't say that with so much glee i think (laughs) i I think the one thing that uh that helps get players prepared for that is coming back to the the book that we've got sitting in front of us and all this wonderful Mm -hmm. art is just the style of the art it prepares everybody for this is a a grim game and you're gonna die if you're stupid Mm -hmm. and i 
I really like how it all just ties together. It's not a game that's got fun, fluffy mechanics and it looks like this. Like, no, the art matches the tone of the games that you're to play. Remind me to show you the map after. Okay. Oh yeah, that map is that map is really cool. <laughs> uh, I was I was so glad. Um, I I got my friend to pick up the the book and the DM screen and everything from you at um. Oh God, the the big Gen pardon. Gen Con or Pax? Gen, Gen Con. It was Gen Con. Um, okay, good. Oh, and I was so glad that you still had the map. Yeah, I mean, we sold out when we were there. Um, I'm, I'm so not I was surprised. going. Went to, I went to Pax West. Birdie. Are you done? Are you done yelling for no reason? <laughs> um, I think she has stopped, but there's no real telling. Um, <laughs> so we sold out of the maps at Gen Con. And I, I thought we had more sitting in storage uh, in the Portland office, but we didn't. And so when I got to PAX West, I was like, oh, God, <laughs> what do I do? This was like why people bought the game is they loved this map. And unfortunately, they were <laughs> the biggest impulse I had ever made. Um, we were kind of at that point where the Kickstarter had made so much more money than I thought it would that I was just panicking. I, I was like, I need to give people more stuff. I need to give people more stuff. And so I committed to these silkscreen maps and it was uh, not cost effective. <laughs> so I won't be printing anymore for a while. Um, but they were a really cool artifact and I'm really glad they turned out so well. And I'm glad people like them. Uh, Jesse, Jesse had to be the map and I unfolded it. And this is fantastic. And I, something, the thing that I like the most about this is that it feels like it fits into the world of the game where it's like, you know, it feels like something that the players would the characters would get almost like mm -hmm. the closest thing I could think of is like, uh, like if they got a map that was on a piece of like, you know, cow leather or something like it's got almost that kind of aesthetic feel to it. Like it's a floppy map that they might get. I also like that. Like, basket land. They're all dead. Um, and like, this is the thing that I like kind of relating to what Sean says. What I really like about it is it feels like a map somebody made based on the landmarks only and so that it doesn't necessarily always like lead one to one which i think mm -hmm. fits with the kind of the bleakness of the game it's like well if you follow this map exactly and don't think about it you might end up somewhere different somewhere yeah. worse <laughs> or you might end up two days outside of town with no water left because you thought yeah. it was a much shorter trek yeah I, there's there is no way to get back unless you get control of that homestead there's just nothing you can do there's no way you can get back fast enough yeah. uh, all those locations on the map are locations that are going to be used in the next two games nice um now speaking of water and the well because it's, it's come up and um I wanted to ask you about the health and water system. Uh, this is actually yeah. another one that um, Kevin Wilson and Maat Crook said that they wanted to ask you about. Let me just pull up mm -hmm. their actual question. Um, they were curious about what you've discovered with uh, playtests about the health and water system, if people have uh, struggled with it, because they were saying that mm -hmm. that's the, the hardest part for them to wrap their heads around. That's so funny, because I never had trouble with that. The way that I explained it was, these are your hit points. You automatically have to use one a day because you are stuck in this horrible world that is killing you just by the fact that you're there. They're hit points. You just are required to burn them. Um, and I think that like, you know, in uh, I think in Monster of the Week, it's luck, I think they use. I've only played that game. I have only ever played a Powered by the Apocalypse game that wasn't my own once. Yeah, I think uh, it's... Kind of it's luck, but it gives you a 12, like if you burn it, yeah. it uses a 12, or you get a 12 automatically. Yeah, yeah. And so if you burn in Cascadeland, I think you get a reroll, um, but I just, you're in a horrible place. The air quality is bad. There might be light. Who knows if the sun is still there? 
you're just in a horrible spot. And so the fact that you're there is going to kill you. Um, I think maybe that kind of throws people for a loop, but I think thinking about thinking about it as hit points that you are required to burn, uh, three times a day, right? Cause you have to take a drink of water every day. Yeah. Um, you can't lose them, right? You can't get hit by a monster. You can only get hit by a monster like a couple times. You have to be very careful. You can go through Cascaland and not fight at all if you're smart about it. And you should be because you don't have a whole lot of water. <laughs> yeah. I think um, that, that that idea of it's a it's a resource that it's it's your life, but you have to burn some every day is a mechanic that I think is amazing because one of the things that I've always wanted to do and uh, I I almost did it in a previous D&D campaign, but then I got burnt out and threw it all out the window was a big um, like exploration West marches trek through a desert where they have to go and try and find something. And the mm-hmm. thing that I really wanted to do was have there be a mechanic where you know they had to think about how far they could travel with the supplies that they had they had to like set up new base camps and set up supply lines so that they could like try and find this old ancient buried temple thing but the idea of having something that means that like the players have to think real hard about like oh that's a two-day trek we've got to make sure that we can do this and that we're going to be smart about it like it, it comes back to the whole tone that the the art and everything is setting is that like yeah this is a game that if if you just rush in your players are just going to end up is bleach skeletons out in the desert somewhere yeah yeah i also like that it's um it's kind of a, it would work as a thing that i think is a problem for some dms and D, which is like just players using rests too often because if yeah. i recall you you use three water a day that's yeah yeah mm-hmm. it's like once when you wake up once in the middle of the day once like before you go to sleep functionally and just mm-hmm. like the fact that yeah like if you're out and you don't have extra water and like you only have what functionally with the the adventure you have it's like you have three days to get to the well more or less mm-hmm. like yeah you gotta go and you gotta push your luck and you have to take risks and yeah you might die because this is a dangerous place like there are literally caskets growing out of the ground like yeah it's great i uh i have a very lazy explanation for why i did that <laughs> um I wanted to be able to end the game in one night. <laughs> I didn't ever want to have to keep going back and running the same game for three weeks, which I have done before. And it was just, it's too much. I get bored. I don't want to do it anymore. I wanted the no pressure game for someone you could, for something for playing when someone you love is in from out of town and you just want to do it in one night. Um, well, I was, I just wanted it to be over. <laughs> I think that is a, like a very honestly legitimate and smart design tactic because not, every rpg needs to be played week after week after week uh there are so many great ones like even small little ones like um a couple of weeks ago we did extra life and we played actual cannibal shia labeouf and like yes um and it's like it's a a great little like two or three page rpg based on the song that like you can't play you can't do a campaign with it that's not what it's built for you you either die or you kill shia labeouf and those are your only options and Okay. I didn't even know this game was out there. I am so intrigued. I will send you a link later. Um, Please. And I talking about this of like you wanted to have a game that was only ever like one session. Uh, it, it it actually made me realize something that like I've I've run I, I've done one D and D campaign that I finished and I'm in uh 
I'm kind of in the middle of one right now, although I'm taking a break right now, like we're not playing, because I, I've been finding that with long D&D campaigns, I start to get burnt out. I get to a point where I just, I can't think of how the next session needs to go. I can't sit down and plan. I just, I just get burnt out. And I think, and I've been thinking about, because I've run a bunch of like smaller, like one to three session campaigns with other systems like with the uh the uh end of the world series and with eclipse phase and star wars where it's like these are really quick short campaigns that are like yeah one to five sessions max and i think that like maybe that's just the kind of dm i am is that i can i can do like really fun intense short campaigns but i just don't have the mental stamina to do a year-long campaign i did one for two and a half years um, it was called the Fenian campaign and it was set on this path of like you had you were given a choice between killing one of two characters at the beginning of the game depending on which one you kill they were both looked the same acted the same one was good one was bad it set you on the path of helping the good guys defeat this evil or the bad guys trying to bring this thing back and so you were kind of this unwitting participant in this game and it went on for so long the pressure became so great the group that was playing it started to have some infighting problems and people were being excluded and it was a wholly terrible experience. I ended it this spring and towards the end I was so stressed out about writing any of it and whether or not I was going to lose actual friendships over my decisions in the game, what was I going to do, blah blah blah. It was so stressful that I just decided absolutely never again. I want to start a group where we play once a week but it's kind of um, whenever you can drop in, you drop in in this shared world where it's kind of this nice, you've got this set story built and you can have all these characters come in and play in a continuing story or a short little story, just something really easy and fun and not not this two and a half year long storyline full of pressure, you yeah. know? Um, I totally and, get you know, that. Yeah, it, it's hard. Like, it's hard to say. Like, I, I know a lot of other DMs struggle with this kind of stuff as well. And I think people forget the amount of pressure that you're putting on your friend who's essentially created a whole story just for you. And it can be a lot. And I like that with Casket Land, there's, there's no pressure because it's over in four <laughs> hours. Um, if the people you invited uh, to the game hate each other within a week, it doesn't matter because the game is over. You know, I, I think the kind of like DM kind of burnout thing, uh, an important thing that doesn't get talked about enough in the tabletop game community, yeah. like it comes up, but like there's a lot of glorifying of, yes, I've been running a 30 year campaign every week. And it's like, that, but, but like, yeah, that that's awesome. But like, not everybody can do that. Yeah. Right. We, you know, we should talk about that sometime. Yes. I, I am just now playing in another game. I, I hadn't played anything other than Casket Land since April. And it was because I was so messed up from how this other campaign went. Like, it was just, it was very hard to look at D&D and not feel like people were going to be mad at me because I didn't write enough about their characters or they didn't like the monster I threw in or they didn't like the world anymore. Or they thought I was dumb. Like, there, there's something to be said about playing with a, gr a group that is not... Um, extremely demanding to the point where it becomes apparent that they don't care about you or the group anymore. That's an important thing too. Yeah. But that pressure, it doesn't go away right away, right? You need to have a really positive experience um, to kind of pull you back out of that and get you excited again. Um, and for DMs, like it's hard to kind of shake the fact that you have to run the game and get to actually play, which I think is kind of revitalizes that love. Like seeing someone else run a campaign and thinking about, oh, here's what I would do. 
I would add this monster. This is such a cool idea. What if this happened instead? It gets you fired up and it kind of makes you feel less bad about going back to DMing. That sounds so sad. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. No, but. no, it, it's relatable. I, I get what you're saying. Um, I think the one of the last questions we have for you about Casketland is uh, it was something that I was curious about, and it's why did you choose Powered by the Apocalypse as the the base? Because I thought it was the easiest to learn. Um, I wanted to be able to sit down and show my dad how to play this game because they have no idea. Like my my parents have no clue what any of this is, and I tell them I'm going to go DM a game. They're like, oh, do you? Is that your job now? Like, what what is this? How many people are possibly playing this game? What's this about? And so I wanted to be able to say, here's the game that I made. Let's play it. You'll learn the rules in 15 minutes. We'll be done in four hours. Now you know what D&D is. Now you know what tabletop games are, right? You got it. That's what I wanted. And so choosing that system was just common sense to me. It had, it felt a lot more straightforward. You were adding a lot less modifiers, which in D&D can be so complicated. Um, I, I thought it was, I thought it was just easier to learn. Um, it was certainly easier for me to learn. I read the rules, came up with a game, ran it in about an hour when I did monster monster of the week. It just felt intuitive. Um, and I think also it allows you to, to kind of push and add different elements into it a little bit easier. It's, it's easier to kind of break and build back up. I, I definitely agree. I think that's kind of the great thing about powered by the apocalypse is like, like you said, it's, 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 it's simple enough that you can learn it quickly, but it's complex enough that like you're able to to modify it and change it around a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I recently ran, well, I say recently, it's probably been a couple of months now. Uh, I ran a game of Worldwide Wrestling, which is powered by the apocalypse, but uh, you're all wrestlers on a like WrestleMania show, or oh, or or you're playing like you know wrestlers at some local arena kind of deal. And the thing that kind of blew my mind about it was just how quickly, because I played it with some people I work with, how quickly everybody was able to just pick a character, like do the initial setup, and we were into the game. Like that, how quickly everybody was able to just get it. It wasn't like D&D that I've played with some new people a couple of times. And I recently ran a a one shot that include at somebody's birthday party that included the the dad of one of the players and just how long it took for all of the mechanics, not even all the mechanics, enough of the mechanics that we could actually do a fight to click in everybody's brains is, I I don't think I'm going to run D&D for brand new players because it's just, I don't want to have to deal with that. It can sometimes take months. Yeah. 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 It's, It's a hard game to learn. And I say that as someone who has a hard time focusing and a hard time doing honestly math um it's it's hard for me to remember what goes where and to add it all in my head and subtract things and it's it took me four years to understand D enough that i didn't have to have my handbook with me everywhere i i don't want to do that with casket land i want it to be easy i also like that it's only uh 2d6s so really anyone can play even if they don't have access to like the full set of dice yeah it's that's one of the things that i like about power the, by the apocalypse is that a lot of the the games that i've seen like you can if the dm has the book which you can usually like there's various versions like if you want to play like i think the uh the wrestling one i think most of it you can get you can get like a base rules and like some basic characters i think for free on the website and then mm-hmm. go and raid like if you've got a board game, you've got enough D6s to run a Powered by the Apocalypse game. Right. Well, and even if you have a physical book, they're, like, slightly bigger than a novel. 
like just the standard paperback. Like I've got um Monster of the Week and um what's the other one? Monster Hearts two, both both in paperback and they're they're in a, relatively inexpensive. I think they're like thirty bucks American and you can you know, throw them in a backpack, just carry them. That's all and that's all you need other than a pair of dice which you can find anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when we do the real nice rules expanded edition of Casket Land, I can promise you it will be uh, not a paperback because I am a bougie book bitch. <laughs> truly, truly Nosferatu and Bones level of opulent. Um, oh man, Nosferatu is such a pretty book. I, I, you know, thank you. I love that book. I love Orlock so much. Um, I'm definitely going to try to work him into a casket land somehow eventually. Because uh, how could you not? He's so good. <laughs> he works for the aesthetic, that's for sure. He sure does. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, Marie, I think think we're about at the time where we're going to wrap up i've got a, a last question for you it's kind of our traditional uh final question for somebody when we interview them um which <laughs> is if it, you could uh step through a time warp and go back in time to when you were first working on casket lands what's a piece of advice you would have given yourself don't double the game <laughs> don't double the game which is what happened in kickstarter i was so nervous I just kept doing more and more and more and more work. Not tell people I was going to deliver it as soon as possible. Um, and I, because I, I needed extra months to work on it. I didn't know the game was going to get bigger. Mm. Um, and probably, I, I think I would have probably prepared myself for being, for being now kind of a known figure in tabletop. Mm-hmm. Because at the beginning, there was some, like April through July, there was some real, some real nasty people that I didn't necessarily expect because my, my time in comics had been so nice and easy for me. Um, and I think I would have just prepared myself a little bit more for that and kind of tried to not let it get to me so bad because it really did get to me for a long time. It was you know, sad to say, but I think a common experience for some some folks in gaming. But There are some... I don't. I actually don't want to say some. I think that's minimizing it. There, there are a lot of like pretty nasty people in the community, which is unfortunate. And you know, we've got a. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I. I don't. I don't understand it honestly. But it sucks, and I'm sorry you had to deal with that. I think a lot of people do. I think it was just something I never expected. Like I remember the the first time I really had trouble coming home and just being like, "What do I do? Like, why are they so mad at me? Why do they hate me this much?" I think I think someone someone told, and I appreciated the imagery a little bit. They told me to put my hands in a blender, which was like a really creative insult, which I could could appreciate. But I was also like, oh God, why would you say this to someone else? And I was trying to figure out. I was like, well, what did I do? What did I what did I do to make this person so mad? And I was like, I didn't do anything. I made a game. Don't play it. If you're gonna be nasty, don't play the game. Yeah. No jerk in basket land. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Though the toxicity in the community that gets directed at so many people is that could be at several episodes worth of content i think of trying to deal with figure out where does it come from why do people feel the need to be that way and what can we do about it but we're at the end of this episode (laughs) i'm so sorry that i closed it out with like no no No, i I could have although i guess that's appropriate for casket land don't don't be Uh, sorry because i think it's it's something that does need to be talked about and hearing that people go through Unfortunately, what you went through is something that I think if more people hear about it, the more that we can have conversations and start to figure out how to combat it. I also think it's good for other people who are going through something similar to like hear other people. Yeah, to know that you're not alone, I think is a big yeah. thing. Yeah. So well, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, I love to talk about Casco Land, so this has been real nice. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, let us know maybe 
once the the beta is out or if farther along the line if you want to come back on and talk about it again you're more than welcome absolutely well when it when this releases we'll probably be running the kickstarter for the second campaign awesome um just so that people you know know and don't miss it uh it's going to be a little bit different than the next one i don't know that i'm going to be doing scout books again although i've got a couple months to figure that out um and it might be a little bit of a longer game trying to debate so we'll see um so uh just before we go where can people find you online People can find me online at, on Twitter at S-O underscore E-N-G-E-R-Y. It's so angry, uh, even though it's got that E. Instagram at the same username. And then on uh, my website is S-O dash E-N-G-E-R-Y dot com. Yeah. And uh, just quickly again, do you know what the, the title of the second Kickstarter will be? So people can search it easily? Yeah, we're going to call it Casket Land. Um, so the same title. And we call the first campaign The Homestead. We're calling this one Cruick. So, Casket Land Cruick. Perfect. C-R-U-A-C-H. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks no, no again problem. for coming on. My pleasure. And uh, have an excellent day. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Bye. Right. Okay. Thank you for listening to DMs of Vancouver. We acknowledge that the land we live, work, and play on is the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. In recognition of that fact, we ask that you please support Raven, a charity that helps support Indigenous people throughout Canada. You can find them at raventrust.com. We are a part of the Cave Goblin Network. To check out other shows on the network, please visit cavegoblins.com. You can support the show and the network by becoming a patron at patreon.com cavegoblins. You can also support the show by leaving us a review on iTunes or talking about the show. You can find us on Twitter at DMs of Vancouver, at Jesse Boros, and at Sean P. Hagen. Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. See more of her work at HaleyBoros.com. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. Find his work at Acompetech.com. Everyone is Jonas is a live-streamed, competitive role-playing podcast hosted by me, Doug Vandalay. Me, Eric Ivanovich. And me, Talia Murdoch. On twitch.tv forward slash cavegoblins every Monday at 7.30 p.m. PST. Hey there, lovely listeners. I'm Talia Murdoch, and I'm here to tell you about my show, Everything Economics. Every week, I talk about the world around you, specific social and economic issues, and dive into how fantasy realms would work in real life. That's Everything Economics on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.